I want to welcome you all again to Hammock Street Church. Whether you've joined us on site here or online, we're honored to have you as a part of our Hammock Street community because it's our mission here to create what we call an irresistible environment for everybody. From those who are totally unfamiliar with being a part of a church community to, to those who've grown up in the church and feel like every Sunday is a homecoming Sunday. I want to thank you for supporting this ministry. I want to thank you for helping us to be able to continue to make Jesus well-known in our area. So if you're just joining us, we are in the middle of a series that we're calling Big Church. Not necessarily because we're big, but because the idea of a worldwide church community, the idea of a people connected together by a common love of Jesus is a really big thing. It's a really big thing to be a part of as well. Earlier this week, I was up in Atlanta and I attended a lead pastor's conference with more than 100 other pastors belonging to the Irresistible Churches Network. Uh, that is an organization we belong to. It is spearheaded by North Point Community Church in Atlanta. And while I was listening to my fellow pastors, I guess my colleagues speak, I was reminded of a thought that I had years ago when I first became a follower of Jesus. When, when I first became a believer and joined this, this movement of Jesus followers, I was blown away by the fact that this community of Jesus followers existed for my entire life and no one had ever told me about it. I, people asked me, I grew up down in Kendall in Miami, and people would say, oh, did you know so-and-so church or such-and-such church? And I'd say, honestly, no. I knew no churches other than there was one called St. Catherine's. It was a Catholic church that was just close to the house, so I had to pass it all the time. So that's the one I knew about. But no one had ever told me about this community of this, of this Jesus movement, of this group of believers bound together by a faith in Jesus. But then one day, and I told this story before, a coworker of mine introduced me to Jesus, and he kind of set me on the road to understanding God and to connecting with God. And then he invited me into the community of believers. And he did so through the Apostle Paul's words in his letter to the believers in Rome. Because in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he showed me this. Paul said, the Apostle Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And for me, that was transformative. That was life-changing. And I eagerly tapped into that power. And the more that I read about God and the more that I listened to a guy by the name of Steve Brown. Anybody know who Steve Brown is? Steve Brown's a Bible teacher. Uh, he actually ended up being uh, one of my preaching teachers in seminary. So he was really the first Bible teacher I ever listened to. And I listened to him on cassettes. By the way, kids, a cassette... It's like an MP3 that lives in its own portable, sort of a playing card sized plastic house. So that, that's what a cassette is. But as I listened, I became more and more excited about belonging to this community that stood for an eternal connection to the creator of the universe, a life characterized by love for each other and even our enemies, and that stood for this opportunity that we have to share God's good news with legitimately everyone with whom we come into contact. So for me, like many new believers, like many new adherents, I couldn't wait to tell the whole world about the things that I had found. 
And after a little while of trying to get to know Jesus on my own, I joined a church community and I began to meet other believers. But before long in that environment, I was surprised to learn that not everyone who claimed a faith in Jesus was quite as enthusiastic as I found myself. I met a lot of people who took their faith in Jesus for granted and didn't seem to recognize the full and abundant life that is found in Jesus that's just there for the taking. And as I was kind of paying attention to this and processing what I'd seen, I couldn't stop thinking that these people just must not understand. They must not fully comprehend the life that exists for them. It's right there at their fingertips. And the question that stuck in my head was this. Why? In America, where we are free to worship God, where we are free to become a part of a movement that turned my life completely around and has given me direction and purpose. In America, where we are free to share that same life change with literally every single person we meet, wouldn't everybody want to become a part of that? Wouldn't everybody want to be a part of this community? All I could come up with in explaining why everyone isn't is that people must not know or they must not at least understand the true mission of the movement of people who follow Jesus. They must not yet understand the simple but powerful message that caused people 2,000 years ago to pack the streets of Jerusalem and to commit their lives to following this Galilean rabbi who'd been crucified and buried and then rose from the dead only a few months before. And he rose to begin not an organization, not a location, not an institution, but a big movement centered around a very simple message. The message is this, that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of the living God. And it's for that reason that we've been looking at the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, which is the historical chronicle written by Dr. Luke, so, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke was a physician, and he was the traveling partner of the Apostle Paul. And, and Luke wrote this account after he had interviewed people, after he had asked a bunch of questions. And one of the questions, or some of the questions he asked were these, how did the movement that we now know of as the church, and how did the story of the leader of that movement, the Rabbi Jesus, how did it survive the first century? And, and why is there a church today? And why does one-third of the world's population in some ways still acknowledge that Jesus was sent from God and is actually the Son of God to save us from our sins? Why? Now, the book of Acts gives us those answers. Now, a few weeks ago, we saw how on opening day, over 3,000 people who were eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus, 3,000 people on that first day embraced the message. Then we saw how those eyewitnesses poured into the streets of Jerusalem and proclaimed that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah and that he'd been raised from the dead. And then we saw that not long after that, the crowd had grown to over five to 10,000 people, which was roughly about 10% of the population of Jerusalem at that time. So the movement's brand new, and all of a sudden, about 10% of the people have already bought into it. Before long, the followers of the Jesus movement were threatening that precarious balance that was taking place 
between the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem and the Roman authorities in Jerusalem. And that gave the Roman authorities some concern. They were concerned that this Christian movement, that this Jesus movement was somehow anti-Roman because the Romans had crucified Jesus. Well, the Jewish establishment was also concerned. They thought the movement was anti-Jewish because Jesus had spoken out against their leaders, the Jewish religious leaders. Now, by that time, there were thousands of people in Jerusalem proclaiming that Jesus had risen from the dead, proclaiming that Jesus is that Savior that the Jews have been waiting for forever, that Jesus is the Messiah, and that things are changing, and that they would never go back to the way that they were before. And because of all that, persecution followed. Where we left off last week, if you'll recall, the religious leaders had dragged Jesus' apostles, which was the 12 people that followed Jesus, which at that time was 11 people minus Judas, remember Judas, but then they added one to replace him, so we're back up to 12. And those apostles were brought before the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish ruling body, and they were warned to stop talking about the resurrection and stop mentioning the name of Jesus. And then to drive their point home, Luke described how they were flogged. Remember what that was? It was whipped with a whip called a cat of nine tails, which is a whip with a bunch of leather straps and tied to each one of the leather straps is something sharp, a piece of glass, a piece of metal, a piece of sharp wood. So when they were whipped with these things, it just took the skin right off of them, whipped them down to their bone. And then here's what happens next. We're going to look at Acts chapter 5, verses 41 and 42. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. So they had just been whipped and they were rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name, for the name of Jesus. Day after day in the temple courts, so get that, they were whipped with the cat and nine tails. Their skin was bursted, busted open. They were bleeding and they were rejoicing. And then they went right back to the exact same place day after day in the temple courts. And from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. And last week we looked at that and we said, wow, that's bold. They didn't hide away after being jailed. They didn't hide away after appearing before the court, the Sanhedrin. They didn't avoid the scary people that were surely and clearly out to make sure that they'd never speak of Jesus again. They didn't whine on social media about it. They didn't complain how they were triggered or unfairly attacked or their feelings were hurt. They kept going and they proclaimed Jesus in the temple courts and they proclaimed Jesus to the people in their homes. Nothing, literally no thing was able to stop them. And as time went on, the movement continued to grow, and it soon spilled over out from Jerusalem into the surrounding areas, and the movement was building a big audience, which is what we're going to call the message today. So why don't we pray, and then we'll dig in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us together here this morning. We thank you for another opportunity to come together as your people as the people who love you, as the people who are committed to you, as the people who've turned their lives around and devoted them to you. So God, as we look at the scripture this morning, as we continue to consider the story of the early church, we would ask that you would take some part of it and use it to transform our hearts and minds and draw us closer and closer to you. God, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, 
as the movement went on and it got a little bit larger and a little bit more complex, well, the believers started to develop this hierarchy. They had to come up with a way to structure the way this local church movement would, would operate. Well, soon, other movement leaders began to surface. And they began to take on responsibility. So it wasn't just the apostles after a while. More and more people stepped into leadership roles. And one of those leaders was a man named Stephen. We don't know much about Stephen other than he is now considered to be one of the first deacons or one of the first people who was responsible for seeing to the needs of the church. Now, if you've ever heard of Stephen Ministry, has anyone ever heard of Stephen Ministry? Anybody? Stephen Ministry is a ministry that trains the lay people in the church to care for others who are going through difficult times. Well, it's named after the Apostle Stephen. Well, Stephen spoke boldly about his faith. And because he was not one of the original apostles, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, determined they would take advantage of that fact, and they had him arrested. And they actually paid people to come before the court and give false testimony about Stephen to say things that weren't true and to claim that Stephen had said things that he hadn't said. And at the end of presenting these supposed trumped-up charges, Stephen offered his defense. And that defense is found in Acts chapter 7, and I'm not going to read it today, but I encourage you to read it. It's really interesting. It's one of the longest single messages in the Bible and he took his Jewish audience through the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, all the way up to the current day in order to explain the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, they didn't appreciate that very much. And by the end of Stephen's message, they were so enraged that they picked Stephen up and dragged him outside the city and stoned him to death. Well, that made Stephen the church's first martyr. Martyr is somebody who died for his faith in Jesus. And Stephen's murder emboldened the enemies of the church to keep on going, to start persecuting anyone who continued to proclaim the name of Jesus and embrace the Jesus movement in Jerusalem. Well, after that, Luke continues his historical recap of the period that followed of persecution of the believers. And in so doing... Luke introduced the person who would have arguably come to have, who would arguably come to have the single greatest impact on the movement. All right, so he introduces a new character in the story who's going to have a huge impact. Now let's take a look. We go to Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of their killing Stephen. So Stephen was just killed, stoned to death, and some guy named Saul steps up and approves of it. So Saul, actually in Hebrew, the name is pronounced Shaul. So Shaul, Saul, of course, that's the Hebrew name of the man we know of as who? The Apostle Paul, right. So let's take a moment to understand, first off, how the naming thing works. So when a family relocates from one country to a different country, or when a person of a particular ethnicity lives among people of a different ethnicity... They sometimes take on a forename or a given name or a first name that reflects their new surroundings. So I think of it this way. This is the easiest way to think of it. For those of you who are my age or who remember, we didn't refer to this actor that you see by his given Japanese name, Noriyuki. His name was Noriyuki Morita. But we referred to him by his American name, Pat. Pat Morita. I'm not positive that Pat is a typical nickname for Noriyuki. Anybody have a Noriyuki in their elementary school class? And your name is Noriyuki, but everybody calls me Pat. Okay. I don't know. I'm not sure. But Pat Morita 
was, of course, beloved by many of us growing up. He was Arnold on Happy Days. He was Mr. Miyagi in The Karate Kid. Anyway, Paul was Saul's name among the Greeks, among the Romans. His given name was the Hebrew Shaul, but his Greek, he went by Paul. So anyway, we're going to call him Paul for the rest of the time now so we don't get confused. So Paul was standing there while they were stoning Stephen, and he's nodding his head in approval. He's like, yeah, get that guy, when the crowd of religious men was stoning Stephen to death. And then, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So because of this deadly new persecution, the, the, the new followers of Jesus got out of town. I mean, they just left. And as for those who remained, godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. All right, why do you have to go house to house to find these women and men, huh? Because that's where the believers met. They didn't have large church buildings at that time. They didn't have large gathering spaces at that time. So he went house to house. And Paul soon became the number one persecutor of Jesus' people. Now, thinking that he was doing God's will, he wasn't trying to be mean. He thought he was doing God's will. He was determined to eliminate this fledgling Jesus movement for good. According to Luke, that persecution of Paul continued for three years. But even as the persecution continued, the movement kept growing and kept spreading. As it turned out, Paul, as a persecutor, actually forced the believers to keep on drifting farther and farther away from Jerusalem, which effectively catalyzed the way the movement spread. So it spilled out of Jerusalem and it kept on moving because he was chasing people out of Jerusalem. But then something happened that changed everything. It changed everything for both Paul and also for the spread of the gospel. We go to Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. All right, what does that mean? Well, Paul approaches the Jewish high priest, who was the highest-ranked religious leader in the Jewish community. He's known of in Hebrew as the Kohen Gadol. So if you meet anybody whose last name is Cohen, that is derived from the name of the high priest, the Kohen Gadol, the title of the high priest. And he said, he said to this high priest, hey, listen, please grant me the authority to continue arresting anyone who follows Jesus, and I'd like to start off in Damascus. All right, verse two, so if he found any there who belonged to the way, before we go on, check this out. At that moment in history, the Jesus followers were not called Christians. In fact, and you'll, you'll notice, I hope, that I really, I really hesitate to use the word Christian when I speak, when I preach, and all that stuff. The word Christian only appears three times in the Bible. Two of them are pretty derogatory. One, not quite as much. But Christian was the way that people outside of the faith described the people inside of the faith. And it was kind of done so in a derogatory way. But they were known as followers of the way. Why the way? Well, because Jesus continued and consistently referred to himself as the way. Remember what John said in his gospel? Jesus answered, I am the what? Way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except through me. 
Now, that teaching was so central to Jesus' message that it became the most accurate way to label the whole movement. So they just called the whole movement the way. So that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So Jesus is, um, so Paul's on his way to Damascus with permission to arrest any Jesus follower he found and then drag them back to Jerusalem to trial. So that's what he's doing. He's on this road and he's heading to Damascus. Verse three, as he neared Damascus on his journey, journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Hold on to that. First thing I want to see here is the way, no pun intended, the way that the voice, which was the voice of Jesus, instructed Paul about his ongoing persecution campaign. He said, why do you persecute me? Jesus didn't ask why Paul was persecuting an institution. Jesus didn't ask why Paul was persecuting a location. Jesus didn't ask why Paul was persecuting any of the leaders of that institution or location. He said, why are you persecuting me? Jesus was dead and resurrected and had ascended to heaven by that time. Well, from the text, it appears that Paul didn't yet comprehend what Jesus was getting at because here's what he says next. This is, this is Paul. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. So Jesus' response here indicates his meaning. What you do to my people, you do to me. Being in the presence of my people is the same as being in my presence on earth. We, as God's people, as people who belong to Jesus, we stand as representatives for Jesus here on earth. That's what it means for us. We, today, are the same we that Jesus was referring to. Paul would later eventually understand, as he would clarify in his first letter to the church in Corinth, to the believers in Corinth, by telling them that they comprise the body of Christ. And we'll talk about that from time to time. That's what we are as believers. We make up, we comprise the body of Christ. So Jesus was asking Paul why he was persecuting his people, the group of people who made up the entire Jesus movement. All right, so Jesus continues in verse, or Jesus continues in verse six. Now get up and go into the city And you'll be told what you must do. With that, Paul gets up and he realized he couldn't see. That's when the song by Manfred Mann was written, Blinded by the Light. You can Google that. Paul gets up, he can't see. That light that flashed from heaven blinded him. So he was led to Damascus and there he was, blind in a stranger's house, and he waited there for three days, probably contemplating his life, probably thinking, what's going to happen to me after this? But meanwhile, here's what happened. We go to verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple by the name of Ananias. By the way, this disciple, we're not talking about one of the 12 here. We're talking about a more recent follower of Jesus. The Lord called to him in a vision and said this, Ananias, yes, Lord, Ananias answered, The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. By the way, different Judas. Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. What does it mean that it was called Straight Street? It meant it was a street that was straight. Be careful not to over-spiritualize sometimes. 
and asked for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. Oh, you're darn right he was praying. <laughs> what is going to happen to me? I've been sitting here three days, blind, where am I? Anyway, this sets off a warning bell in Ananias' head. And Ananias is thinking, he probably, probably has a beard, so he's stroking his beard. He's going, hmm, Saul, you say. That name sounds really familiar. Is it? Nah. It can't possibly be. So he said, Lord. I'm, I'm sure the voice broke on that one. Lord. I've heard many reports about this guy, Saul, and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. Ananias is going, I think he's coming after me, and I'm supposed to go find him. Lord, are you sure you've got the right guy? I mean, I heard that guy, Saul, is someone you avoid, not someone you go looking for. And not only that, but he has come here, verse 14, with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. There it is again. On your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. Do you see what he said? Proclaim my name, proclaim the name of Jesus, not just the message of Jesus, not just the teachings of Jesus, to proclaim the name of Jesus to all of these people. So from this, we can clearly see that Jesus' message wasn't only for the Jews in the region. It wasn't only for the, the Jews who understood the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and the context of the Messiah's arrival inside of that Old Testament. You see, the Jews were waiting for a Messiah to come, but the Gentiles didn't know anything about a Messiah coming. So, we continue on that this message was not only for the Jewish people, but for the Gentiles. And I'm going to guess that most of you, if not all of you here, are those people. All Gentile means is you don't belong to the nation of Israel. You belong to any of the other nations that exist in the whole world. So if you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. All right? You got that? This message is for the entire world. And to take that message to them, God chose the most unlikely of candidates to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel, I will show him, we're talking about Paul here, how much he must suffer for my name. Now, even though Ananias knew of Paul's reputation, even though he knew that Paul had his fellow believers arrested and removed from their homes and taken away never to return, Ananias was faithful and he obeyed. And he knocked on the door of that house on Straight Street and he walked into the house where he found Paul blinded. And Ananias laid his hands on Paul, likely, and told him about God's Holy Spirit. And Luke tells us that something like scales fell from Paul's eyes, and he was finally able to see again. And during the days that followed, Paul became more and more aware of this assignment that God had called him to on that road to Damascus. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus, but Paul wasn't arresting anyone anymore. Verse 20, at once he began to preach in the synagogues. This is now, remember, this is the apostle Paul who was persecuting and throwing Christians in jail. And now all of a sudden he's going back into the Jewish synagogues and he's telling them about Jesus, the God the Son. Verse 21, all those who heard him were astonished and asked, you know, imagine the rumbling and the gossiping that's going on in the pews over there. Hey, isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name, the name of Jesus? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? They couldn't, 
believe it. They were confused. This Paul guy, this Saul guy is going around arresting believers and now he's actually saying, become one of those believers. And Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by, by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. So, for a number of years after that, Paul goes away. And he goes away to learn about the way. And he went to Arabia for three years, and then he spent time with Peter, and then he spent time with James, Jesus' brother, and he spent time with Jesus' closest followers to learn more and more about Jesus, to absorb everything there was to know about Jesus, about Jesus' life and about his teachings. And after that, Paul traveled through the known world of his day on what we call his missionary journeys. And as he went on, he planted churches, he planted communities, ecclesias devoted to Jesus. Everywhere he went, he would first follow that pattern. He would go to the synagogue, he would tell the Jews about Jesus, then he would convince as many as he could to join the Jesus movement. And when the majority of them rejected him, sometimes rejected with a beating or rejected with a stoning or rejected with an arrest, he would wipe the dust off his sandals and he would move on to the next town to bring the message of Jesus to the Gentiles in the region. He would say, I have some great news for you. God has brought an end to all of the religion that you've had in your lifetime. I'm bringing you the culmination. I'm bringing you something brand new. God has spoken and he has sent his son, Jesus, into the world. So Paul took this message far and wide. He went to large cities. He went to small towns everywhere, boldly proclaiming the resurrection in the name of Jesus. So in the late 50s AD, the Roman authorities arrested Paul. They finally put an end to it. They found him while he was in Jerusalem. They transported him to Caesarea, which was a coastal town in, in what we know of as Israel. He was jailed there for two years. But if you'll recall, Paul was also a Roman citizen. So he was entitled to appeal his arrest to the emperor, to Caesar. So after his two years imprisoned in Caesarea, Paul began the long and perilous journey to Rome. Think about Israel to Rome. It's a long journey on foot where he would be placed under house arrest for two more years. While he was imprisoned in Rome, he wrote some letters that ended up as books of the Bible. He wrote letters to the community in Ephesus which is where we get the book of Ephesians, to the community in Philippi, where we get the book of Philippians, to the community in Colossae, where we get the book of Colossians. He wrote a letter to a man named Philemon. That's where we get the book of Philemon. Well, the Romans released him after two years. Not long after that, in about 66 AD, Nero, the Roman emperor Nero, had Paul arrested and threw Paul into a dungeon in Rome for another year and a half. So in late 67 AD, they finally executed Paul. And the next year, Nero, who was incredibly paranoid, committed suicide because he feared that his followers were going to kill him. And as Andy Stanley likes to observe, today people name their dogs Nero and their sons Paul. Quite a flip. Now, I went through all of that to illustrate the fact that bad things can absolutely still happen to good people, but God doesn't go anywhere. God remains on his throne. And throughout the book of Acts, we never read about the believers fearfully hiding away and doubting God, clustering into little groups and pretending the outside world doesn't exist and building parallel societies to keep us safe. You'll never, ever hear about that in the scripture. Instead, you hear about the believers remaining bold and remaining committed to the life-changing message 
that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And the main reason that we all know about that today was because Paul was bold. And because Paul was committed as a missionary to take that good news, that gospel message outside of Judea and into the rest of the world, spreading the faith. And on top of Paul's missionary activities, Paul did something that even further catalyzed the spread of the gospel. See, Paul, as both an ethnic Jew and a Roman citizen, he was uniquely equipped to bring this Judaism-based faith, Christianity, our faith is a Judaism-based faith, into the Gentile world. Now, next week we're going to see how Paul's Gentile-friendly version of the way brought him all sorts of trouble. We'll see that next week. God's calling upon Paul was to guide the Gentiles who lacked any connection to or knowledge of the Hebrew Bible into an understanding of the essence of the gospel. You know, it's really hard for us to understand because we have access to everything. If we want to read a book about some other religion, we all have these computers in our pockets, our phones, in case you don't get the reference. But you can look up anything. Anything you want to know is right there in your pocket. They obviously didn't have that. So if you weren't a follower of a particular faith, you just didn't know what that faith did. If you were not a Jew, you didn't know what the Jewish Bible said. So Paul is sharing this Jewish-based faith with a bunch of Gentiles who don't know anything. He's got a little explaining to do. Paul repeatedly went into heavily Gentile regions and taught about what God had done in their midst. In Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians, Paul boils down the essence of the gospel. So this is the place in the New Testament where the gospel is put together in one spot most completely. So here it is, 1 Corinthians 15, 1. He said, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received and, which, and on which you have taken your stand. Now remember, he said, I want to remind you. Well, what was he reminding them of? He'd been there already. So he already started that community in Corinth. So he was just reminding them of what he told them while he was there. And then he said, what I preached to you. So he's going to go, okay, remember, here, here comes the gospel definition. So here's what he says. This is the gospel. For what I received, I passed on to you as first importance. Now, what I received, what I received from God, what I received from talking to all the other apostles, what I received as I was preparing for this time of my ministry, I passed on to you as first importance. So in other words, he says, this is the most important. If you forget everything else you ever thought you knew or wanted to know about Jesus, don't forget this. Remember this, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried. So I got that. Jesus died. Jesus was buried, okay, that he was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scripture, that he appeared to Cephas. Who's Cephas? Peter, Peter Cephas. And then to the 12, that's to the apostles, that's to the, um, the disciples, that's the 11 plus 1. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Remember, I say that all the time when I share the gospel during communion or I share the gospel. Jesus appeared to 500 witnesses. Jesus appeared to plenty of witnesses. So verse 6, after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. And then he says this, most of whom are still living. All right, what does that mean? Well, this letter was written in roughly the mid-50s AD, which is about 20 years after the crucifixion and the resurrection. That, that's not that long. How many people here can remember 20 years ago? Yeah, we all can, right? Unless you're just Younger than 20, and then you don't remember it. But. So, Paul's saying to the believers in Corinth, I get it. I understand how implausible this is. 
I understand. How do we believe that a dead man got out of the grave, that a dead man got up and walked around and then ascended to heaven? I get it. But there are 500 witnesses of this risen Jesus. And if you want, you can go back to Jerusalem and you can still talk to them. You can ask them yourself what it is that they saw. He continues, though some have fallen asleep, basically some have passed away during those years. Then he continues, then Jesus appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And then listen to Paul as he brings it back to his own personal ministry. Verse 8, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born, born from his parents. For I am the least of the apostles, and I do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So Paul, remember, big persecutor of the church of God, big persecutor of the people, gets blinded, and all of a sudden now he's sharing the gospel. He's on Jesus' side. He confesses to them, I personally persecuted the gathering, the ecclesia, the movement of Jesus, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. I mean, that's amazing. One of the worst persecutors of the followers of Jesus becomes one of the most prolific sellers, providers of the gospel. Paul, the guy with all the places in the world named after him. Remember that? St. Paul, Minnesota, Sao Paulo, Brazil. How many people, how many places are named after the apostle Paul? Paul, that guy who wrote a vast majority of the New Testament writing, more than any other New Testament author, I should say, Paul was saying, listen, I don't know why God would choose somebody like me. I don't know why God would allow me to bring this message to you. Of all the people God could have chosen, certainly he could have done better than I. Certainly he could have found a person who didn't persecute the movement to lead the movement. But God chose me by his grace. God chose me because he's not holding that against me. And Paul would echo this sentiment over and over again. We even remember that that Paul considers himself to be the chief of all sinners. But Paul brought the essential message of the gospel to those believers in Corinth. And here was that essential message of the gospel that Paul provided. Christ died for our sin. He was buried. He was raised. And he appeared. That's the message of the gospel. In fact, won't you say it with me? Ready? Here we go. Christ died for our sin. He was buried. He was raised. And he appeared. That's a very good job. We don't usually do that. Thank you. But that's all you need to know. That's all they needed to know. That's the irreducible minimum. That's it. It's the only part of the whole Christian thing that we can never, ever lose sight of. Christ died for our sin. He was buried. He was raised. And he appeared. That's the gospel. That's the starting point. For, for all of the Christian faith. Any issues that you might have with whether the Bible is entirely true or not. I know everybody's heard, oh, the Bible contradicts itself and you can't trust the Bible and the Bible isn't real. And you all have sorts of questions or, or how is Christianity valid when, when you guys know some Christians and you go, this is real. These people wouldn't be the way that they are. I mean, those questions that you have or, or what about how you find certain Christian public figures, people who go out in public and say, I'm a Christian, then they act like the meanest people in the world. I mean, you think that and you go, wow, how can I believe this faith? How can I understand that if these people are out there? You reconcile those issues from inside, not from the outside. Those things are just distracting you from the main thing. And the main thing is that Christ died for our sins. 
And he was buried and he was raised and he appeared. That's the important thing. Get that first, the details you can get to later. If you're going to focus on anything, focus first on that. Did Christ die for our sins? Was he buried? Was he raised from the dead? And was he seen by witnesses? It is as simple as that. Notwithstanding his ethnic background, notwithstanding his education, notwithstanding his effectiveness as an inquisitor, notwithstanding his miraculous conversion, notwithstanding the, the clarity of God's call on his life, Paul focused on this. Christ was sent into the world to die for your sins, and then he rose from the dead, and he's been seen. And that means that the challenge that we have, the challenge for you and the challenge for me is simply to ask ourselves this question. What have I done with that? Have I ever embraced this personally? Notwithstanding what you might have previously believed, that maybe growing up in a Christian household was most important, or maybe serving in the church as an altar boy, as an altar girl is most important, or maybe you believe that listening to Christian music and Way FM and stopping cursing so much is most important. Maybe you think wearing a cross or a crucifix or having a, a fish sticker on your car is the most important. Notwithstanding all of that, the only thing that has the power to change your life is the moment that you finally get it, the moment that you finally understand that Christ died for your sins and he rose from the dead. And when you understand that, it's in that moment that you enter into a faith relationship with God, with your heavenly father. That's the thing that you have in common with the world of followers of Jesus. When I was up in Atlanta with all these pastors and all these people in the room, we had that in common no matter where they were from. Whether they were from other states, other cities, other countries, we were all bound together by the fact that we all had this common faith. Because only once you realize and recognize that is your salvation secure. And that's what brings us into community. And that's what unifies us. The fact that Christ is the Son of God, the living Son of God, who died for our sins, who was buried, and who rose from the dead, and who was seen. So as we wrap up today, please think about this. Has there ever been a time in your life when you experienced that aha moment? When you acknowledged, yes, I see it, I get it, I believe it. Have you ever expressed to God in your, in your heart and in your mind Thank you, God, that Jesus died for my sins, was buried, rose from the dead, and lives today. I want to embrace him as my savior, as my own personal savior. Because look, as you continue to be a part of our Hemick Street community, we'll do our best to help you through those other questions, those other concerns. We can talk about that. And we might even be able to help you through some of them. Maybe not all of them, but some of them. You don't have to believe the whole thing as long as you believe the right thing. The only thing that matters is what have you done with the gospel? What have you done with the fact that Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead? If there's never been a moment in your life that you've embraced that personally, I want to give you the opportunity to do it right now. Because this is what the Jesus movement is all about. This is the message that brings us all together. So if during the message this morning, that clicked for you and, you and you thought, hmm, I think I believe that, then maybe today's the day. Maybe today's the day for you to take that step and embrace that message and join the ecclesia, the movement, the church movement of God. So why don't we do this? Why don't we all bow our heads?
If you're watching online, please bow your head. If you're driving, don't do it. But I'm going to lead you through a little prayer. Feel free to say it out loud if you like. Say it in your head if you don't want to. Feel free to change some of the wording so it's not weird sounding and Christian-y and make it fit you. But please, essentially, pray this. Heavenly Father, I believe Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world and for my sins. I believe that Jesus was buried. And I believe that on the third day you raised him from the dead and that he was seen. Father, I embrace Jesus as my personal Savior. I'm trusting in Jesus to provide forgiveness for all of my sin, for my past sin, for the sins I'll commit today, and the sins I'll commit in the future. God, receive me into your family. I understand that by praying that and asking that, I am now part of the church, the ecclesia of God. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.